I was in a situation after my daughter was born where I would lay awake at night thinking about her future. And it was when there was all that talk about um, how there would be more plastic than fish in the ocean by 2050. I'm sure you remember that. And, and I thought, my God, you know, if that's true, then my daughter will be the generation of my family to write the obituary for our oceans. Hi, everybody. My name is Doug Barr, and it is my pleasure to welcome you to the St. Helena Forum for Innovation and Creativity. The Forum is an educational nonprofit with a mission to inform and to entertain, and we hope to occasionally inspire by presenting artistic performances and also exchanges of creative and innovative thinking on a wide variety of humanities-based subjects. The Forum is an all-volunteer organization, and if you're interested in becoming a member, please visit shforum.org. Today, we are going to be talking about our oceans and asking this question. Is it possible to move beyond cleanup and conservation to actually restoring abundance to the world's oceans? Uh, we've done a bit of research and we discovered one nonprofit called Oceans 2050 that believes it's not only possible, but that restoration can be accomplished in just one generation. And to help us find out how they intend to pull that off, we've invited our friend and marine expert, Megan Brosnan, to join CEO and founder of Oceans 2050, Alexander Cousteau, in a conversation. And we are all invited to listen in. So before we get started, let me tell you a little bit about our guests. Megan Brosnan is the director of marine programs at Wild Aid. Many of you have already heard of this organization. It's an internationally recognized nonprofit that works with media and governments and local partners to make wildlife conservation a global priority. Uh, Megan is a graduate of the United States Coast Guard Academy, and she earned her master's degree in marine affairs at the University of Washington. And then she spent 15 years working all over the world as the deputy chief of the Coast Guard's Living Marine Enforcement Program. In addition, Megan founded Exelons, a global consultancy for ocean conservation, and she also developed technology to curb illegal fishing in coastal Africa and the Pacific for the Pew Charitable Trust. Megan continues to serve in the Coast Guard Reserve, leading the 20-person department right here in the Bay Area. There are not very many people who can brag that they were taught to swim by Jacques Cousteau, but his granddaughter, Alexandra, is one of them. Alexandra's advocacy for ocean started when she was eight years old and already gathering signatures for her grandfather's petitions to save Antarctica. Alexandra is a third-generation explorer, environmentalist, activist, and filmmaker, and most of Alexandra's work has involved ocean conservation. She's advocated for the expansion of marine protected areas. She's conducted deep sea surveys. She's investigated the impacts of agricultural runoff and oil spills on sensitive coastal zones and much, much more. But in the past few years, Alexandra tells us she's come to believe that although conservation remains important, it isn't enough. That what's required is a strategic plan for ocean restoration. Through Oceans 2050, Alexandra and her team intend to turn that vision into a reality. I know you're all looking forward to their conversation, as am I. So let's get to it, everyone. Please welcome Alexandra Cousteau and Megan Brosnan. Hi, Doug. Hi, Alexandra. And hi, Megan. Thank you so much for joining us today at the Forum. Can't tell you how much we appreciate it. Well, let's get to this. Megan, if you're ready, I'll turn the floor over to you to begin the discussion. Yes, thanks so much, uh, Alexandra. It's so great to see you again. It's good to see you, Megan. 
<laughs> so we're here to talk about Oceans 2050. Um, I, uh, and my first question that comes to my mind when I hear about that is, why the year 2050? That's a great question. Um, it actually came to mind uh, a few years ago after my daughter was born and I started really thinking deeply about the state of the oceans. Um, you know, I've been in the ocean space my entire life. Um, I went on my first expedition with my parents when I was four months old and uh, I could swim before I could walk and, and my grandfather taught me to dive when I was seven. So the oceans have always been, um, you know, an essential part of who I am and, and, and how I see myself in the world and um, the work that I do. And so for years, I had been advancing this idea that it's important to conserve and protect and sustain our oceans. And it's an ethic that my father helped to articulate in the 1960s, really, that that changed how people understood the dangers facing the ocean and the degradation of the ocean, what we had to do about it. And yet, you know, I, I was in a situation after my daughter was born where I would lay awake at night thinking about her future. And it was when there was all that talk about um, how there would be more plastic than fish in the ocean by 2050. I'm sure you remember that. And and I thought, my God, you know, if that's true, then my daughter will be the generation of my family to write the obituary for our oceans. And um, I reached out to a friend of mine, uh, Professor Carlos Duarte, who at the time was writing a scientific article that was recently published in Nature magazine about rebuilding marine biodiversity. And I asked him, I said, Carlos, is it possible that by 2050, if we do the right things, we could actually rebuild the oceans and restore what we've lost, that lost abundance? And he said, yes. And actually, I'm writing uh, a paper about that right now um, that lays out you know, the things that we need to do to, to restore abundance by 2050. And I thought, wow, that's amazing. I've never heard that before. I'm amazed that it's actually still possible. And that's what I want the rest of my life to be about is rebuilding our oceans, restoring abundance to our oceans so that by 2050, it's not the story of more plastic than fish. It's actually a story of, of restoring, you know, what, what we've lost and, and making that promise to our children. And so that's when my husband and I started Oceans 2050. And um, we've been, you know, slowly making the, the strategies and, and the plans to operationalize the science that shows and demonstrates that this is scientifically possible. But interestingly, um, they've also demonstrated that you get about a $10 return for every dollar invested in restoring our oceans. Um, so from my perspective, we really don't have any excuse not to do this. You know, it, it makes um, economic sense. It makes ecologic sense. It makes scientific sense. Um, it's it's just switching the narrative and and getting a new mindset that goes away from the conservation mindset, which is really like a, a zero sum game. You know, I want to save fish and you want to fish the fish and eat the fish and you know one of us is going to win and one of us is going to lose and that's really the conservation mindset that has um really defined the last several decades of work in this field and 
And I think, you know, now we're, we have the opportunity to articulate our ambitions in a way that is not ambiguous, that gives us clear yardsticks for measuring our success towards that more abundant ocean of the future. And that if we start really co-creating and visualizing what an abundant ocean would look like in 2050 and following the science, that it's actually, you know, an outcome that we can achieve. And, and that's hopeful. Yeah. Yeah. No, for sure. For sure. And it's true, right? We're not, I hear a lot about how we're never going to see the oceans again of a generation or two. And that's true. There's going to be subtly different, but that doesn't mean we can't still have a vibrant future. That doesn't mean that the future can't still meet the needs of climate change. That can't still meet the needs of an expanding global population. Um, if we actually focus on that, not returning to where we were in the past. I love that. I love that that's how you're approaching things. So then understanding your broad vision of regeneration and restoring abundance, why start with seaweed? <laughs> That's a great question. And um, I honestly never thought that I would be working on seaweed. <laughs> I didn't. But as we were looking at the science, it clearly showed that ocean forests hold a key, right? They are a catalyst for rebuilding um, marine biodiversity. And what many people don't know is that, you know, ocean forests exist. There's, there's vast kelp forests that can be 60 meters deep. There's uh, mangroves, there's salt marshes, seagrass beds. All of these forests um, sequester carbon. They grow up to five times faster than plants on land. So they are extremely valuable in our efforts to mitigate climate change. But they also create habitat, they protect coastal areas, they deacidify ocean water and reoxygenate it. Um, they are extraordinary. And what's really interesting to me about seaweed, I mean, there are so many things, but I, I think when you, you think about industrial feedstocks, right? To create fuel or plastic or, um, you know, so many different things. Typically, it's a feedstock that when you extract it from nature, damages that space that you took it from, right? It either comes from industrial agriculture or, or it comes from some kind of mechanism that's damaging to the planet. And seaweed is a form of agriculture that humans can practice that brings life back to the oceans and provides us with industrial feedstocks for plastics, for fuel, for cosmetics, nutraceuticals, um, for human grade food, for fertilizers. It's extraordinary what seaweed can do. And, and that's a total shift in paradigm. So one of the things that we're looking at, and it's actually our, our first big project um, in the Global Seaweed Project that we launched a few months ago, is to really understand how seaweed farming sequesters carbon so that we can use that to create market incentives to help scale that industry in a regenerative way. 
right? This whole false narrative about it's the economy or the environment has got to go, right? The, the economy is a wholly owned subsidiary of the environment. And by doing agriculture, doing things in the right way, we can bring life back to the oceans and meet our needs, even our industrial needs in a way that doesn't destroy our future. So that, that to me, when I realized that, I got really excited. And then there's another part of it that, that's all about social justice because seaweed farming, especially for communities in, in developing countries can be an alternative to fisheries. It can even give communities something to do when their fisheries collapse. And it is an activity that is practiced by women. And that is really exciting because it gives women a way to earn money for their families that can send their children to school, that can complement um, earnings by their husbands in fisheries. And oftentimes we hear stories about, you know, husbands who's, who can't fish anymore because the fishery collapsed. And so they support their women in the seaweed farming role. And so it is, um, it's just, it's just an exceptionally cool thing. I just, the more I learn about seaweed, the more I get excited about it. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and your last comment with, uh, we are filming this the day after International Women's Day. Uh, yeah. Especially. Uh, so absolutely. with, yeah, with the, with the pandemic going on right now, we have seen marine areas around the world really struggling because of loss of income like what you were just talking about, right? Tourism is very, is not happening at the levels where it was. And you're seeing an impact those communities whose livelihoods depend on it. Um, so your comments about the different uses of seaweed or even the potential for carbon market, which mm-hmm. um, I know there's many groups that are working on that bringing it not just from forests, but also to the ocean. Blue carbon, yeah. It's a hope. It's a definite hope for the future because when we at WildTake and we support these folks who are trying to protect their oceans, uh, they need money to do it in the end, right? The coastal communities need their livelihoods. Uh, the rangers and the enforcement officers need them supplies to keep them safe. You know, for yeah. vessels, right? Um, so I'd love to hear more about like, what else can seaweed be used for? I love seaweed salad. Um, <laughs> um, and let's talk a little bit more about that financial aspect. Well, seaweed is is something that is growing. That you people talk about it a lot. You read about it in the papers a lot. Um, and you know, it's it's kind of developing in fits and starts in some places and it's well established in others. And, um, you know, the marketplace, uh, can use some help right now, I think in coordinating supply and demand. And so this is a really at a global scale, a relatively new dynamic, um, in Asia, they've been cultivating seaweed for thousands of years and you can actually see it from space. Um, One of the the farms in our study is is in Japan and they've been operating continuously for over 300 years. Um, You know, we're working with other farms in the United States and Canada and Chile that are much newer newer and younger. 
Um, but it's, uh, it's, it's interesting because the, the seaweed farms can, can produce, um, this raw material for so many different industries, you know, um, Atlantic sea farms in Maine, which is one of, one of our farms in our studies, um, it's the CEO is a dynamic woman um, who is working with lobster fishermen in Maine who've been fishing lobster for generations, but are finding that the distribution of lobsters is changing with the changing climate. And so now they've started uh, growing kelp in the off season to supplement their income. And it may be that one day when the lobsters move on because of warming waters, that, that it becomes their entire livelihood. Um, we see, you know, other communities in Indonesia um, that had a thriving seaweed farming industry um, that collapsed because of uh, different differing regulations in the United States for what they were farming the seaweed for. And those regulations changed. And that was, you know, they only produced seaweed for that one purpose. And, and when those regulations changed, then the demand disappeared and, and, you know, thousands of families were out of work. So it, it's right now, it has that kind of new, new marketplace where it's, it's calibrating. But I think that we're going to find that with the experience that the Asians have in, in cultivating seaweed and the extraordinary amount of energy and innovation that's happening now in the West, you know, on, on both sides of the Atlantic, when those meet, um, and they're able to share their knowledge and their experience and their ideas and their research, uh, I think we're going to have a really exciting industry that can produce those raw materials for plastic and fuel and you know beauty products and food, and people are going to have kelp smoothies. I think there's a big role for chefs to play in helping us understand how we can use seaweed in our cuisine and make it more of a, a regular practice because it's so healthy and has so many micronutrients and everything else. So um, it's going to be really exciting, I think, for us to be part of that because what we really want to do is see a shift. Um, right now, we see in most industries, people are compensated for exploiting the environment right? In agriculture and, and in a, we exploit the environment and we make money from that. And I think right now, if we focus on the blue economy as an opportunity to create a regenerative blue economy rather than an exploitative blue economy, then we will be in a situation where we can compensate people for carbon, for biodiversity, for all sorts of services that those farms provide to the larger ecosystem that is actually creating that abundance. And um, there's one last story uh, that I thought was interesting. Um, there was a pilot farm in Norway that was growing kelp for um, energy to study if they could use it to produce energy. And local fishermen were really concerned about how these kelp farms would impact their fishery. And you know, the kelp farms went in and over time, the fishermen found that they were catching more fish and they were like, why are we catching more fish? And they realized that it was because fish need homes and the kelp farms gave them homes. And so there were more of them for the fishermen to catch. And, uh, and so that's where we see the value of abundance and the value of sort of creating that abundance with a view 
of having omni-win solutions where everybody gets what they need rather than the dynamic that we've been in with conservation, which is, you know, zero-sum game. You win, I lose. We're going to fight about the outcome. And, and that shift would bring us to a completely different place. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it doesn't surprise me at all that you, that you have those examples where having this kind of habitat helps everyone. Um, we end up protecting as well do so many you know, roads and seaweed, seagrass beds, et cetera. And you can just see they're the nursery brands, right? <laughs> of, of the ocean. Um, so I wanna get back to a comment you made on uh, collaborations across the Atlantic. Um, of course, uh, there is always that need to take lessons learned to have the toolkits in order to scale, right? in order mm -hmm. to have that impact. So how do we take the science and the research and the uh, deep knowledge of some and take that to an, a global action? Well, um, I think if we're looking at seaweed specifically, it becomes um, really important to share knowledge. You know, the, the farm in Maine was telling me, you know, we're trying to figure all this out. And we're sure that the Japanese figured this out hundreds of years ago, yeah. but we can't read Japanese. And so we can't read their papers and, and their scientific articles to, to get those answers. We have no way of, you know, bridging that divide. And, and so I think that that's gonna be critical um, and it's one of the things that we're doing. We're actually organizing that um, with a, the Sasakawa Peace Foundation in Japan so that we can bring all of our farmers together to have those discussions, to share that knowledge um, and those ideas. And I think that is something, you know, just that alone can help, you know, us advance so quickly. Um, there's, there is, and, and I think that actually the, the pandemic has showed us how quickly we can create change when we want to, right? People were saying, oh, we'll never have a vaccine. It'll take at least 18 to 24 months to get a vaccine. And it got done in like six months. That's extraordinary. And so if we were to apply that same sense of urgency to protecting the life support systems of this planet, upon which the quality of our children's lives and their ability to be prosperous and healthy and happy depend, we could move mountains. But it it goes back to to kind of how we process things as humans. And and when we are presented with a problem, we often go to create these simple, beautiful solutions, which are catastrophic in the end because nature is complex and nature is diverse. And, and we have all these unintended consequences from our well-meaning, simple, beautiful solutions. And I think if we were to understand um, the principle that if we want to decarbonize the atmosphere and recarbonize the biosphere, which is what we need to do to address car uh, climate change, um, what we need to do is reintroduce complexity into the ecosystems that we have devastated, right? We have dead zones around the world now from runoff, agricultural runoff from rivers going into the ocean and, you know, killing off all the life. We have all of these issues that we've created that has simplified the, the web of life and doing things like planting seaweed, as simple as that is, 
but it creates complexity. It creates diversity. It brings life back in all these different forms. And that's what creates that, that ability of those ecosystems to sequester the carbon and to create fisheries and to do all the things that we need them to do. We, we have to kind of give the ocean the chance to, to become complex and diverse again. And that's when we'll have a healthy, abundant ocean that's, you know, helping us mitigate climate change and all these other, feed the world and, you know, give us oxygen to breathe. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and I love that your, your focus in forming this organization is based on scientific studies that are asking that, how we make the future better type of questions. Um, do you have any more specifics you want to share in terms of uh, the seaweed or even other areas with Oceans 2050 and how how the um, how the solutions that you are currently supporting are going to bring that regenerative? We're, yeah, we are looking at a lot of different things, and, and this is a fairly new organization. So seaweed has taken up a lot of our bandwidth to get this off the ground and to really shape the conversation in the seaweed space around what it could be. Um, Cause you know, I, I was in Portugal a couple of years ago for a ministerial meeting and I was one of the only non fisheries ministers there and listening to all the panel discussions with these ministers of the sea and, and fisheries ministers, they were talking about sustainable exploitation as the model for the blue economy. And that terrified me. I was like, I don't even know what sustainable exploitation means, but it sounds like we're going to go make the same mistakes in the ocean that we've made on land, right? And and so one of the most important things to advance is this idea of a regenerative blue economy, that we create economy in the ocean, fisheries, tourism, all these different things in a way that is regenerative. And in the ocean, that's possible because life can come back very quickly in the ocean environment, much faster than on land. And so it's a wonderful opportunity to kind of put that principle into play. Um, but we're also looking at, you know, how do we accelerate the restoration of coral reefs with technology and innovation um, and engineering? You know, they're, they're, the marine biologists have, have kind of taken us as far as they can with coral reef restoration. And now I think we need input from so many different other fields that can help us because, you know, by 2030, we could lose up to 90% of our corals in the world. And those are the, the nurseries of the ocean, as you know, Megan, that's where so much of the life in the ocean or originates. Um, we're also looking at the future of seafood. You know, our pursuit of seafood is is one of the defining issues in the ocean um, that will either allow us to bring life back to the ocean and rebuild it or, or continue to degrade it um, and hit some tipping points in the next decade that are pretty scary. And so looking at, again, technology and AI and blockchain and, and all of these new tools that give us the ability to to shine a light on the global seafood supply chain and really understand if our fish is pirated fish or, you know, if, if it was caught by slaves and, you know, so many of the bad practices that are just in everywhere in, in the fisheries industry, we have the tools now to shine a light on that and, 
and and exclude that and 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 prevent seafood fraud, which which everybody who buys seafood is a victim of seafood fraud. You know, some of the fish you're buying isn't actually the fish you think you're buying. Um, and so, how do we address that? You know, and and really accelerate change there. And um, we're looking at some other things as well. So that's where I think we want to play a role. We're 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 kind of an unusual foundation in that we are. Um, a German foundation, like subject to German law. Um, but we also have foundation owned businesses where a hundred percent of the shares are held by the foundation. And that allows us, um, for projects like coral reef restoration, I think to, to run it like a business, but then reinvest a hundred percent of the profits into the mission of the company. Um, so we're, we're trying to find really just, my goal is not to have a huge nonprofit that I have to fundraise millions of dollars for every year. It's, it's really to be light at our feet and progressive, uh, radically collaborate with everybody that we can and, and lift the whole ocean community through our work rather than, you know, just focus on, on our annual report at the end of the year and how much money we raised for our projects. You know, I, there's nothing wrong with that, but I, that's, that's not how I want to spend my time. I'm not, I'm not a person who likes to, to do like that. Um, I really want to figure out how we all win together because there are so many problems that we have to address that will not be addressed by the big international NGOs alone. Even though they get the bulk of the resources, we need everybody. We need all of the little guys too, like the little turtle rescues in Africa and Asia and the Caribbean. We need everybody to be part of this. And so if we can lift everybody up, that's really how I will measure our success. Yeah, and I want to just accentuate that point because um, it's uh, it is always drives me nuts when I don't see people who have unique skills just working together instead of trying to replicate it. Right? Like, so now I know your skills in seaweed farming. If we're working in a new area where seaweed farming could help, or they're already doing it, but maybe they're struggling a little bit. I have a partner I can reach out to. Why am I like, time? You know, like, you know, and just like I'm hope I'm hopeful that you and you know we have numerous other partners where maybe they're fisheries experts or maybe they're um, protected area experts, um, and they're having a problem with compliance, like or enforcement getting their enforcement systems. We that's what we do. So progressive, right? It's all about the partnerships. Um, it is. So yeah, I just want to highlight that. I love that you say that. Um, on the, is there like one piece of technology that you're most uh, that you're most excited? I'm curious to know. I'm curious to know. Well, <laughs> I, I think those kind of questions. I should have sprayed it. Yeah, no. It, it, it you know, I, I grew up um, thinking that seventy percent of the ocean was invisible to us that we would never be able to address overfishing or piracy or so many of the things that happen out there um, because we'd never be able to, to track it and, and see it and, and reveal it. And, you know, there's, um, there's organizations like the Global Fishing Watch that's, you know, satellite tracking and analyzing um, fishing boats. And so they can actually tell small island developing states 
that there's a illegal fishing happening in their marine protected areas now because they're they're watching it happen on their screens and they can alert the the the, the right authorities. Um, and and that's really exciting to me because you know that's the only way that we'll be able to stop piracy. Um, and now with blockchain and AI and supply chain transparency and traceability, I think those kinds of things are are going to be um, game changers for the seafood industry in in the best way possible by empowering consumers to to make choices that are right for them and right for the ocean. And I think the more information that we can embed in into our, especially our food, the the more people will be able to make the right decisions. I, I think also for you know coral reefs, you know there's so many people who are developing really exciting technologies and 3D printing and other things to be able to restore coral reefs at an accelerated rate. It always felt insufficient to me to like, you know, take the little fragments and put them on the cement cookies and, you know, put them out in the ocean and hope they would grow. Um, even though I did a lot of it, uh, I, it always felt like it wasn't going to restore them fast enough to make up for the massive bleaching events that are happening more and more often. And I see technology being developed that actually can help us catch up. So, you know, I think the important thing to remember is that um, the end has not been written, you know, and on the days that, that I get a little bit discouraged and frustrated, my husband always reminds me the end has not been written and there are inventions and ideas and, you know, projects that haven't happened yet that could be game changers for all of this. Um, and so that's that's what we're looking for. Um, and that's what we want to elevate and amplify in the work that we do. For sure. If you had told me I, I got my first smartphone, I'm going to age myself here when I was in uh grad school um and um, uh if you had told me at that point in time that most of the partners that we were working with in developing nations if they didn't already have a smartphone they we could hand them one and it could connect to the network and work and the simple power that that brings to data, right? Which is a lot of what you were just talking with, blockchain and, and Global Fishing Watch and, you know, there, like where you could empower the world's ocean leaders, the world's rangers, the world's, you know, conservationists. Sorry, that's not the right word. For generous. Um, um, <laughs> um, we have to figure that out. We do, we do. Um, uh, you know, we empower them with that information so they can decide where to plant or they can connect to someone from across the globe, right? Like we're supporting our partners in Zanzibar using Zoom. Like, I would have talked at you. So um, I think that that is a really important item to, to underline. Um, still yeah. plenty of work to do. So plenty of work. Oh, there's so much work to do. Yeah. You're right. Like we, we could, we can do it. Like we can accomplish this. Um, you know, it, it amazes me that um, the oceans 
and and like SDG 14, Life Underwater, is the least funded of the UN Sustainable Development Goals. Like that, that just because because the ocean supports so many of the other development goals. It it and and seaweed farming actually supports many many of those those development sustainable development goals. So, but but the thing that I think is really important to understand is that even if there was more philanthropy in that space, it wouldn't be enough to bridge the gap. We need investors. We need all kinds of, you know, financial tools to come in and make, you know, oceans successful, you know, to get us to that place where we can, um, we can really rebuild our oceans, knowing that if we put the money there, you do have that large return that I mentioned earlier of, of like $10 for every dollar invested. And so it's a really smart investment. Like let's rebuild our life support system on this planet and make money doing it. Like where's the downside, right? No, philanthropy <laughs> has to be the, like the thing that launches, right? Um, mm-hmm. but philanthropy is not going to be what supports all the governments in all the worlds to protect their oceans. It's no. or to, right? It, it ha- there has to be a system where things are made in a way where they're pragmatic, and that can be a bad word, but they're built in a way where they a government can actually support it or sustain it, or a coastal community can support it and sustain it in the long term, right? Maybe those initial investments are out of their reach, maybe initial um, knowledge acquisition can be accelerated, but uh, it's got <laughs> there has to be, and there can be. That's, mm-hmm. that's what I hope that the listeners are taking from your story. There's so many avenues beyond just, you know, just tourism or just fishing where it's actually a melding of income streams where you can do it. They just need to get there. It's true. So, yeah, yeah. Um, I would actually love to bring it back to seaweed, though. <laughs> if we go back, I have one question. I know that we have a lot of farmers in Napa Valley. Rumor has it. Um, and um, I thought we were going to this question before, and I couldn't answer for that, which was how, and I'm guessing it might be different from species to species, but how do you actually plant seaweed? Like, mm-hmm. is it a seaweed that goes into the ground? Is it a, like, what, what does it, like, at a high level, what does farming seaweed even look like? Well, it, it's a great um, it's a great question, and I actually had the same question when I um, started out on on this journey of understanding uh, the the opportunities of seaweed, especially kelp. So kelp um, kelp forests used to exist everywhere at you know a long time ago, sometimes not so long ago. Um, you know, California used to have kelp forests all the way up and down the coasts, and those have declined drastically. Um, same with Portugal and France. Um, most of Europe actually had kelp forests off their coasts. So they were abundant. And for a number of reasons, wild kelp forests around the world have started to decline and in some cases collapse. Um, they're hard to, to bring back because kelp kind of anchor themselves onto rocks at the bottom. And if the... The, the kelp forest has disappeared um, and there's silt 
that has covered the rocky bottom, then then those spores can't attach. Or, or sometimes um, like predators, like like otters, will be removed from the ecosystem, and so sea urchin populations will explode, and they will just eat the whole thing. And then every time a little kelp plant tries to come back, the sea urchins will eat it, and so right. they will depress that ecosystem and, and prevent kelp from coming back. So we found that restoring kelp is really hard. Um, but luckily for us, kelp doesn't mind growing on a rope and the ocean doesn't mind having kelp on a rope or on the you know rocky bottom. It really doesn't matter to, to the ocean. Um, the benefits are largely the same. And so um, what they do is they have... Uh, kelp have like these these reproductive patches um that will that will release spores at a certain time and so you can collect those reproductive patches and get them to release their spores in a tank and then you put rope in the tank and the spores attach to the rope and then you basically have this this rope that's you know, covered in baby kelp spores and you just attach it to buoys in the ocean and the kelp will grow from that. Um, and then you pull it onto your boat, cut the kelp off when it's time to harvest and you're done. You have a kelp farm. So it's actually, you know, it's a great alternative for fishermen because fishermen typically have the boat and they know the ocean and they know the topography you know how to pull where they are they know how to pull in ropes. Um, so that's why like that, that example from Maine works really well because the lobster fishermen have pretty much all the gear they need to become kelp uh, farmers. And so it's, it's really cool that way. And in other parts of the world, like, um, you know, around Zanzibar, for example, where it's very hot and shallow, beautiful turquoise waters with white sand, um, or in Indonesia, you'll have a different species of seaweed, um, but it's also grown you know, on ropes and it's harvested, um, in this case by hand. Um, and interestingly, um, we were talking with Angel Leon, who's, um, a very like famous chef, um, you know, with Michelin stars and he's Spanish. He, he has one of his restaurants in Southern Spain and he's been developing this marine rice from seagrass. And so that was interesting to us because seagrass is disappearing around the world. Um, and it really is important for so many different reasons. You know, hotels usually rip it out because people complain that they're walking on, you know, slimy grass that tickles their feet, but it actually holds the sand in place. It, it um, sequesters carbon. It provides habitat for things like manatees and turtles and other things that we love. Horses. <laughs> Okay. Um, yeah. And actually, Anton has like this big seagrass meadow um, uh, that's part of uh, his harvest, and there's seahorses in it. So he's harvesting marine rice from seagrass and giving a home to seahorses. But what's interesting is with seagrass, it's like a stalk that grows that has all of the rice in it. And you just go along like snorkeling and you snip the stalk of the seagrass that has the their seeds, which are like rice. And that's how you harvest uh, marine rice. And so there's there's different ways to do it. But I think the important thing to 
to um, say about that is that it's all restorative to the ocean. Like, no matter how you 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 cultivate it, um, you know, unless you're you're dumping, you know, fertilizers in to make it grow faster, or or making them baked yeah. in the ocean that we we've made on land. Uh, but if you, if you cultivate it in in a way that's that's regenerative, where you know, you have different kinds of kelp that's being grown on the same farm and you're you're uh, harvesting them at different times or something else that's that's being done. It's called 3D ocean farms. And that's where people are growing kelp on ropes along with mussels and other shellfish. Um, and so that's another way to do it, which is extraordinarily regenerative for the ocean and can also feed a lot of people. And I think it was estimated that if you had an area, the space of Oregon, that was just one big 3D farm, you could feed the world. So um, so there's the, these are very productive, life-affirming farms. <laughs> and, sure. uh, and, and really, really cool, yeah. So can you go, yeah, that's amazing. Um, I always want to know what to look out for, especially when I'm swapping my location that might have a seaweed farm. What could, so fertilizers, you mentioned one thing, what are some other practices that we should look out for as a global community that could tip an otherwise highly regenerative uh, practice into one that's, you know, not great. You know, not great. Yeah. Um, well, I think introducing anything into the ocean environment, just, you know, never. Oh, like a species that's not already. Yeah, or a fertilizer mm -hmm. or some kind of a chemical, you know, with, with uh, aquaculture, that's been a real problem in the ocean, um, putting in fertilizers and anti-parasitic chemicals and things like that. That's been really destructive. Um, I, I think that, uh, you know, really for me, the red flags um, would actually not be so much in, in how the seaweed is being grown, as long as it's being grown, you know, without adding things to the water. Um, I'm more concerned about the demand for seaweed, creating a situation where people go and harvest wild seaweed and over harvest the wild forests. Um, you know, I think that's where we actually need legislation and regulation to protect those wild forests and direct demand to the farms that are doing things in a regenerative way and, and providing people with a healthy, um, you know, seaweed for whatever their purpose is, especially if it's for human consumption. You know, if you're, if you're harvesting wild seaweed, it's very possible that it comes from pristine water. It might also be possible that someone goes and takes seaweed from a place they shouldn't, um, you know, and, and I think that's, that's really important both for the ocean and for the people that are consuming seaweed, that it's coming from a farm that, that follows certain standards and, and does things a certain way. That's uh, actually really helpful for me too in our work. Um, we we <laughs> run into a lot of illegal mangrove forest harvest mm -hmm. wood, but um, I haven't had a lot of partners talk about the problems of illegal or unsustainable seaweed harvest. But that we you know it's got to be happening, so we will start looking at that for sure. Yeah, um, and I yeah. actually was was alerted to this in Iceland. Um, and I met this, this older woman who must've been in her seventies and she had just been in love with the ocean forests of Iceland her whole life. Then, um, 
and she was was sort of raising the alarm because there there was this spike in interest in in seaweed for kind of you know healthy shakes and you know health food and and different things and so businesses you know startups would go out and just harvest wild forests and because there had never been a demand there was no regulation um and so the wild forests were starting to disappear literally just because people were over harvesting them and there was no one keeping track and you can't really see them so um it's 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 interesting, you know, that that uh, there's also one of the big dangers for for ocean forests is uh, heat waves. So hot currents like La Nina can come through and devastate. It's like a forest fire underwater um, it has the same impact. And so and you don't even know that they're gone because you, you don't see them. They're underwater. And, and yet that whole ecosystem can can disappear. And if there's not action taken very quickly to replace them and help them to grow back, then you know those environments can get silted or they can change in some way, and 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 then the forests don't come back at all. So, um, you know, one of the interesting technology solutions to that is actually figuring out how we can monitor um, the expansion and contraction of ocean forests worldwide from satellites. You know, we're already doing that with coral reefs. Um, and, uh, and so being able to do that with, with seaweed forests would be tremendously helpful because then we could really understand what we have, what we're losing, what we can bring back, um, and, and how that benefits the, the environment. One of the interesting things that our study is also looking at, um, in addition to taking core samples under the farms to measure carbon sequestration, we're also doing eDNA analysis to understand how the farms have increased biodiversity since they started. So um, that's going to be kind of interesting to understand because it means that we'll, we'll know a lot more about how to compensate farmers for that biodiversity service that their farms are providing to the ecosystem. Um, so yeah, there's so much to learn and I think so much to look forward to. And, and um, the oceans really has a fighting chance if we approach, you know, this from a regenerative principle um, rather than just thinking that we'll just do more of the same and have a different outcome. <laughs> That's no, nah, I, I don't think that. <laughs> so, Alexander, it's been great to hear about what Oceans 2050 is doing to regenerate the oceans. What can our audience do to support? our efforts and rebuilding the oceans worldwide? Well, that's a really good question. It's a really important question because obviously you and I aren't going to be able to do this alone. <laughs> we need everybody to be part of this um, effort. And there, there, there's been a lot of talk about plastics. We don't work on plastics at Oceans 2050 just because there is so much good work out there that's being done on that. And, and that's important. Um, you know, we can't restore our oceans if they turn into a landfill. And, and so, um, you know, a lot of people think that if we solve the plastic problem, then the oceans will be fine. That's not true. But sort of fixing the plastic problem is a precursor to really being able to address everything else. And so um, anything that people can do to reduce their own plastic use, to buy in bulk, to use reusable containers and um, those kinds of things, really important. Um, the other thing that, that 
is is a way that we impact the ocean on a daily basis is our um, consumption of seafood. You know, so going to the supermarket and and being thoughtful about you know the fish that you're buying, asking your fishmonger questions, using the guides, um, uh, all of those things really make a difference um, for for our our seafood. And then um, supporting legislation and voting, you know, for candidates that care about the ocean and take action um, in ways that that benefit the ocean is also really important. You know, the U.S. has some amazing legislation that was put in place by thoughtful politicians that cared about the issue. And there are those politicians, um, you know, on the Hill. And actually, the oceans is something that's a bipartisan issue. So, um, you know, supporting that is is really, really important these days. Um, and And yeah, just staying informed and teaching your children to love nature. That's also something really important. Teach, take your kids to the ocean. <laughs> teach them. <laughs> take them outside. Take them to the tide pools. Take them to the beach. Take them to the ocean. Let them fall in love with that incredible ecosystem that's so important to to all of us. Um, that's also something we can do. Alexandra, Megan, excuse me. I can't tell you how much I hate to interrupt this incredibly informative discussion, but unfortunately we have run out of time. I thank you though so much for allowing us to listen in. It's just been a total pleasure. Thanks again. Thank you so much. Stay well. Thank you. If you'd like to learn more about the subject of today's forum, you'll find related links on our website at shforum.org. Or if you'd like to learn more about Megan's work, check out wildaid.org. And to keep up with Alexandra's efforts to restore abundance to the world's oceans, go to oceans2050.org. Our next forum will feature Janet Alber, the artistic director of the world-famous Martha Graham Dance Company. The Graham Company, as most of you know, is the oldest in America and is renowned since 1926 for its innovative choreography. They've recently been doing some fascinating work in collaboration with Google and with the help of a couple of her incredible dancers, Janet will show us some stunning examples of improvisational choreography. It is truly going to be a memorable presentation, so please be sure not to miss it. Check our website for the exact date and time. And that does it for now. But I look forward to seeing all of you here the next time at the St. Helena Forum for Innovation and Creativity.